Hello and welcome to the second episode of Strip Back the Pages. This week, my first guest, Steph Goodacre and I will be looking at Halloween and the story of Dracula. So strap into the roller coaster of horror and prepare yourself for the darkest night of the year. <laughs> welcome to the Strip Back the Pages podcast. I'm NJ and I'm really looking forward to exploring the heart of storytelling with you. So why are stories so important? What do they do? And what drives authors to write them in the first place? As we delve into the intricacies of this worldwide phenomenon, I will also share my personal experiences, the highs and lows of writing and publishing, my successes and failures. Join with me as I, as we, journey towards an unwritten future. Before we begin, I want to thank you for such a fantastic response to the first show. Thank you, Sue from Birmingham, who said that the hairs on her arms stood upright as she listened to the closing music, while John, in Leicester, shared his result of doing the exercise I invited listeners to do last week. He said the soundtrack created in his mind the images of a scene of a film set on the White Cliffs of Dover. This is what he visualised. A young woman, wearing a big straw hat, in her late 20s, early 30s, driving an old 1920s vintage car, is seen racing up to her partner to tell him her true feelings. Her man was standing on the cliff, looking out towards the sea, and on hearing the car approaching, turned around. Roll credits. Thank you, John. I love it. Now then, there are just five days to go before the kids go trick-or-treating, and the ghouls come out to play. So... I'm really pleased to introduce my very first guest, Steph Goodacre. So, Steph, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And you've offered, you kindly offered, to do some book reviews for us. Yes, I don't mind doing a few. Yeah, that'll be really fun. So we're reckoning once every, I don't know, four to six weeks or so. Yeah, that sounds um, fine. Yep, looking forward to that. Now, of course, next week we're five days away from Halloween. Until we spoke earlier, I had no idea about the origins and everything else. Um, But you have. Tell us more. Well, legend has it, it originated in Ireland. Yep, which is where you're from. Yeah, and uh, it was because of uh, the pagans that had festivals around the time of Halloween because of the shortness of the days. Yeah. And uh, when... Various other tribes took over. They introduced a festival saying it was uh, to get rid of evil spirits. Ah, the evil spirits. Mm. Mm. But different countries celebrate it in different ways. So in what ways? Well, uh, New Orleans has the traditional Day of the Dead. Yeah. Where they have uh, parades and everything and there's skulls and black clothes and everything. Uh, The Polish, I believe, put lights on all the gravestones. Right. On the night of Halloween. Yeah. Uh, The Americans, I believe, are the ones that started trick-or-treat. Ah. Because as I grew up in Ireland, there was no such thing as trick-or-treat. Right. We had fireworks, if you were lucky. Yeah. Because, of course, we don't have bonfire night. Because the south of Ireland has nothing to do with sort of Guy Fawkes. Yeah. And uh, we used to have lanterns. They weren't made out of pumpkins. They were made out of swedes. 
Ah. Which, believe you me, are a lot harder to cut than a pumpkin. I can believe it. I can believe it. But that comes from a story of Irish folklore of some drunken Irishman selling his soul to the devil. Yeah. So that the devil would pay his tab in the pub. Right. And then when the devil came back to collect, he told the devil it was up at the top of a tree. Mm -hmm. And when the devil climbed up, the crafty drunk drew a cross at the bottom of the tree so the devil couldn't come down. I like it. And Mm. then eventually uh, he sort of said, all right, then I'll let you down. And when he died, eventually, uh, of course, he goes to go to heaven and heaven wouldn't have him in. And he goes to hell to get in there and the devil goes, oh, no, you're not coming in here. What I will give you is an ember of hell's fire that you can carry as a lantern. And so that's, that where, that's where that's it originates? That's meant to be where it originates from. Ah. See, I've, I've got to say, um, listeners, that Steph is, she's an absolute, what's, what's the correct term, fount of knowledge? Holder of bizarre facts, nothing useful. <laughs> Lots useful. I mean, thanks for that. That's really fascinating. Um, I mean, we have, we've got tons to get through tonight as far as Halloween and everything else goes. I've made a brief list. As Steph's already mentioned, trick or treat, werewolves, vampires, ghosts, bogeymen, demons, witches, costume parties, pumpkins, uh, make, making jack-o'-lanterns, again, as Steph mentioned, bonfires, divination, and apple bobbing. I remember we spoke briefly the other day about um, apple bobbing. That's because you had no idea what it was. <laughs> uh, I must admit, um, I don't know why we do it. Mm. Apart from the fact that everybody else gets to laugh at the person trying to catch the apple. Yeah. But uh, they do do that in Ireland on Halloween. Because mm. doesn't that originate from Roman times when they invaded? And then introduced their... I have no idea, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. I mean, I had, um, a, I had a brief look earlier, but, you know. I must admit, I, I haven't heard that one. I mean, yeah. most of the things the Romans introduced were uh, very useful and incredibly clever. Yeah, that's true. I mean, their roads are still in existence. Mm. Ours disintegrate after five years. <laughs> so, as I was researching all this, I had a brief look at you know, the famous books and films that um, are associated with Halloween. And this is part of the list I got. I'm not going to go through all of it, because if I do, we'll be here all night. But um, Practical Magic by Alice Hoffman, these are the books. Pet Cemetery by Stephen King. The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. The Graveyard Book, uh, Neil Gaiman. The Legend of Sleepy Hollow uh, by Washington Irving. Frankenstein, of course, by Mary Shelley. And a book we're going to be looking at a lot closer in a bit, Dracula by Bram Stoker. Who was Irish? He was. I yes. know. Yes. Do, do you know which part of Ireland? No, but uh, Ireland has produced a great many authors that people assume are English. Yeah, such as? George Bernard Shaw. Right, yeah. Everybody knew um, Oscar Wilde was Irish. Yeah. Mainly because nobody wanted to admit to him belonging to them, really, at the mm, time. Yeah. You know, now he'd be incredibly popular. Yeah. 
So those are the books, the films. So you can get these films out on uh, on the big night. You've got Hocus Pocus, Halloween, Beetlejuice, Sleepy Hollow, The Exorcist. There's a film. Uh, a Nightmare on Elm Street, Carrie, Scream and Twilight. So there's a yes, it's a selection, isn't it? It's a selection that I would probably never watch. Yeah. I then, can get frightened looking at the bills. I don't have to sit in front of a television to do it. <laughs> but then, I mean, see, horror isn't for everyone. No. So, I mean, crime's your thing, isn't it? Murder. Oh. <laughs> yes. I will be touching on that in a few weeks when, when stuff's back on. So I'm really excited about that. So, as promised last week, let's head off to Transylvania and the blood-sucking vampires of yesterday. Or are they still lurking? What do you think? Are they still lurking? Usually in the Houses of Parliament. (laughs) Brilliant. Brilliant. So, Dracula. Who has read... Actually, have you read um, Dracula? No. No. Okay. Who has read Bram Stoker's Dracula? Now, here is a brief history of the story behind the story. And it is really interesting. In the summer of 1890, Stoker who was 45 at the time, entered the subscription library in Whitby, England. Whitby, Yorkshire. Thank you. Do not say it's just in England. Right. You will insult every Yorkshireman on the planet. OK. But why, why is that? Because they are very, very proud of the fact that Dracula was written in Whitby. Right. My sons went on a school trip there 30-odd years ago. Yeah. And uh, got suitably told ghost stories and things. In fact, I think a couple of the girls on the trip had a sleepless night afterwards. But uh, Yeah. In fact, I remember I went on holiday in York years ago. And there was, there was a, um, a, a ghost, uh, what was it called? A sort of ghost trail. Yeah, ghost walk. They ghost have, walk, yeah. They have one... Uh, I believe they have them both in Nottingham and in Leicester. Yeah, I mean, the one I went on was absolutely fantastic. But talk about Leicester and ghosts. I've actually seen one. Well, heard it. Tell me more. Okay. Imagine this scene. This really happened. When I was doing my Elton Tribute show, I went to a meeting to arrange a gig. On this particular day, it was raining heavily. Anyway... I was meeting with the manager at this particular venue in Leicester, which I was soon to discover was haunted. As we planned for my forthcoming New Year's Eve gig, a door suddenly slammed shut and I was told it was a ghost. Honestly, I couldn't believe it. I checked round thoroughly. Every single window and door was closed, categorically proving that some kind of paranormal activity had taken place. Was I spooked or what? Anyway, where were we? I like that. Thank you. So, Steph, have you ever seen a ghost? Not that I'm aware of. Do you think they exist? I think they probably do, but uh, just like there's good spirits and evil spirits, I don't think you should uh, muck about with these things. I completely agree. If you've got good spirits, you've got bad. If there's a god, there's a devil. And I'm totally convinced they exist. You can't have positive without negative, and I know what I experienced that day was real. You know, whether you believe in God or not, there's the old Chinese philosophy of yin and yang, 
where there's one positive and one negative. And they're always inseparable. Where you've got good, you've got bad. One represents the sun, one represents the moon. Femininity and masculinity. Where it's impossible to separate them. Yeah, I think most people have heard of uh, yin and yang. Um, And yeah, good point. Anyway, I suppose I'd better carry on telling you more about Dracula. Okay then, get on with it. (laughs) Okay. Stoker requested the accounts of principalities of Wallachia and Moldavia by William Wilkinson, a rare book with access only granted for those who asked for it. Stoker didn't read all of it, but made notes in his journal from a certain section and then returned it. He stopped next to the Whitby Museum, where he reviewed a series of maps and pieced together a route beginning in London and ending on a mountaintop deep within the wilds of Romania. Transylvania is, of course, a historical region in the centre of the country. So, Steph, have you got anything to add? No, carry on. OK. So, from the museum, Bram made his way to Whitby Harbour and spoke to members of the Royal Coast Guard. He learned of a small sailing vessel, the Dimitri, which originated in Varna, an Eastern European port, that ran aground a few years earlier with only a handful of the remaining crew alive and discovered that it was carrying a mysterious cargo, crates of earth. Apparently, rescue workers, while investigating the damaged ship, reported seeing a large black dog escape from the hull and run up the 199 steps from the Tate Sands Beach into the graveyard of St Mary's Church. So, Steph... As we're looking at the creation of the story of Dracula, have you ever been to Whitby? No, I haven't. But as I mentioned earlier, both my sons have. Do you know if they've been to Tate Sands Beach? I know they've been up the steps up to the church. Yeah, I must go up there again myself sometime. But this time I'll try not to get myself nearly blown off a cliff. Well, that's good. Means there'll be another podcast. Ah, thank you, Steph. Right, now, a really serious question. Have you ever been crazy enough to go camping in stormy conditions? Now, the word crazy should be a bit of a hint. (laughs) I have never gone camping. I don't believe in sharing my bed with spiders, bugs and anything else with more than two legs. Beautifully put. Now, I think you'll find this interesting. Stoker had made a note that Vavwod, or Dracula, in the Wallachian language, means devil. He had also done research on vampirism, following reports of an 18th century mass hysteria of a pro-existing folk belief in the Balkans. In the book, Stoker, as authors often do, changed the ship's name from Dimitri to Demeter. Stoker had found that strange place between fact and fiction. Again, that whole thing about the strange place between fact and fiction. I just love the way everything evolves. Let me ask you this. Did you know that in Bram Stoker's journal, there were pages upon pages of notes of mysticism, mesmerism and many possible rules for Dracula, including his lack of reflection, his superhuman strength and his ability to take several forms. Well, I didn't know they were in his notes, but I do hope he spelt them right. (laughs) How do you mean he spelt them right? It's hard enough to say, isn't it? Very true. <laughs> Very true, yeah. I don't think he had spelled checker in his day. No, he didn't. He, but mind you, he had publishers. So it was their job to Wait, get no, it no, right. Not the publishers. They employed minions to proofread. True. Very true. Anyway, 
To cut a long story short, because of the recent murders in Whitechapel, Stoker was told his story would have to be sold as fiction, and not as a warning of a very real evil as Stoker had initially intended. Here's another interesting point. Stoker travelled often in order to make his book as real as possible. His journal included thousands of memos, and what I like is that Stoker gave one of his main characters from the novel, Jonathan Harker, the same trait, to keep a journal in which he recorded his exploits. Harker was named after the author's friend, Jonathan Cunningham Harker, a set designer at the Lyceum Theatre, Ireland. I don't suppose you visited that, have you? The Lyceum Theatre? Yeah, the Lyceum Theatre. Whereabouts in Ireland is it? I don't know. No, because the main theatre in Dublin's the Gaiety Theatre. Right. Let's have a look, or maybe it's been turned into a bingo hall. <laughs> We've got one in London, one in Sheffield, one in Crewe, Edinburgh, uh, London, and there is one in Dublin. Right. Now, when... Ah, now this is interesting. There's two dates when it opened. Oh, right. When was uh, Dracula written? Dracula was written between 1891 and 1897. So it must be this one. Well, 1884, there's a thing here where it says, there's a proposal for a huge theatre at the junction of Tara Street and Pierce Street, with the site of the former fire station. Right. Ah. It was an idea put forward by London theatre investors who ultimately couldn't get the fe- the funding. Right. So then, in 1906, James Joyce wanted to open one, but it was a picture theatre. Right. But it is. It's fascinating stuff. One thing I've got to say, um, Steph has been absolutely brilliant. As as everyone knows, I'm writing a novel. It's, it's due out in the next few months. But but during the final edit, I'd often give her a call and get a much-valued opinion. What do you think of this? Or should I change that? And she's been absolutely brilliant. So again, thank you. Right, so Stoker's brother, an experimental surgeon, was almost certainly the influence behind the character Abraham Van Helsing. Did, did you know that, Steph? I did, but the, the career title's a bit worrying. Yeah. Makes you wonder why, you know, he didn't write Frankenstein instead of Dracula. <laughs> I like it. So Van Helsing was most famously played by Peter Cushing in the 1958 film The Horror of Dracula, with Christopher Lee, of course, playing the evil count. And how do we picture him? With his black tuxedo, long cape, and those ghastly fangs. You know, talking about this is taking me back to a very memorable holiday I had as a child, where one dark, cold night on a holiday camp far, far away, well, it was actually in Tenby. My cousin Sue and Nick and a few friends were sitting quietly as I started telling ghost stories. Ha <laughs> I guess I started young. Anyway, after all the screams had died down, my poor auntie and uncle had a complaint. If you're listening, I'm sorry. Any comments? I should imagine you should be very sorry. (laughs) They had one night of their holiday totally ruined by you being a spoilt little brat. Me? Yes, you. (laughs) Anyway, back to Dracula. Do you know much about the cape and his his dress's attire? 
but it was it was common attire in the in the end of the Victorian era for men to wear capes, wasn't it? Yeah, that's true. Here's what I found out: in the early 1920s, two cinematic versions of Dracula were released: a Hungarian film, Dracula's Death, and the German Nosferatu. These were the first visual representations of Dracula in history, and they presented a very different vampire to the one we know today. Any comments on that bit? Well, I would say that uh, we put the cloak on him and the tuxedo because at the turn of the beginning of the 20th century, that would be what a gentleman wore at night. That's a good point. But Dracula wasn't a gentleman. Ah, but he tried to appear a gentleman. He did. He did. Some men are very, very good at trying to appear to be a gentleman. Mm. Anyway. Back to. In the film Nosferatu, the vampire appeared as a horrible monster dressed in Eastern European clothing. It was actually a stage show dating back to 1924 that invented the image of Dracula, and movies made after this cemented it. Here is what Bram Stoker had to say about his character, taken from the original text. Depicted first as a tall old man, the vampire is clean-shaven with a long white moustache and clad in black from head to foot with no colour in his face. Dracula is described as carrying an antique silver lamp in which the flame burned, throwing long quivering shadows as it flickered in the draught of the open door. Later in the book, as Dracula magically becomes a young man, he is described as follows. A tall, thin man with a beaky nose, a black moustache and pointed beard. The text goes on to say that he has big white teeth that looked all the whiter because his lips were so red and his teeth pointed like that of an animal. Interesting. Almost describing a werewolf. Yeah, good point. Mmm. So, are there any werewolves and vampires out in Five Nights' Time? Quite possibly. Which is why I'm not going out. My son keeps telling me I should have a night out on my broomstick, but I don't think I'll bother. I quite agree. I quite agree. So, as Dracula flies off into the night, let's have a look at the magic of reading. Right, so, one of the things that really fascinates me, and I'm sure it will fascinate a lot of other people, is... We read a book, and then it's on film. Uh, now you've give us a bit of history about your reading because you've done loads of reading. I started reading when I was about four. Yeah. Um, I can even remember the very first book I owned. All right. I don't remember the story, but I know at the end of it, a cat got a big fish birthday cake. Oh. And it was green with a fish on the top of it, and I thought it was the most disgusting-looking thing on the planet. Hmm. Okay, listeners, you heard that. Anybody who knows the title of that story, please write in and tell us. That would be fascinating. I first started reading when I realised that when my older brother went to bed, he was allowed to keep the light on for half an hour for reading. Right. So even before I could read properly, I insisted on having the light on for half an hour to read. (laughs) But 
I was really only looking at the pictures, but I didn't want to be outdone by my older brother. I don't blame you. And then I went through the the standard routes of comics with Harold Hare, who always said goody, goody gumdrops. Yeah. And Famous Five, Secret Seven. And then it got to the point of anything I could get my hands on. Yeah. I even used to, when I was about 11 or 12, I would nick books out my dad's room. They were Sven Hassel war books, Alistair MacLean, Neville Shoot, anything. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. One thing I didn't like was the books we were given to read at grammar school. Right, why? Because you were given one book that you were meant to learn for the whole year. So you were meant to read one chapter a week and then talk about it. Uh, I mean, I remember... To me, if you're given a book, you read it. Yeah, yeah. Then you can talk about it. Mm. I was always getting into trouble for that. I mean, I remember our books at school. One was Kess and Day of the Triffids. Oh, ours were... Uh, Tale of Two Cities. Pride and Prejudice, Under the Greenwood Tree, and Anna Pavlova. Right. There was another one, but I can't quite remember it. Yeah. But they were, give me a book and I'll read it. Yeah, yeah. Then I'll worry about what I didn't like and did like, because Mm. if you do it chapter by chapter, sometimes one chapter doesn't come into context till... You read the next chapter. Yeah. Yeah. You know, try war and peace. There's one that'll kill you. Mm. Mm. What about... So you've got the book. I mean, the average book takes, what, seven and a half, eight hours to read? There's no such thing as an average book. That's true, actually, yeah. Every book is different. That's the lovely thing about it. Yeah. And it's different to different people. Mm-hmm. Because the good thing about books is you use your brain to picture whatever scene you're reading. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm Irish. Yeah. I'm white, yeah. in theory. <laughs> and I could read a book, the same, same book as somebody who lives in Cape Town. Right. Who's black. Yeah. And is reading that book, but in our heads, we'll be picturing totally different things. Yeah. Because you picture what you're used to or what you expect. Yeah. Whereas if you watch a film, it stops you using your imagination. It's all done for you. Which was exactly the bit I was going to get to. And in my case, you just fall asleep in front of the telly usually. (laughs) Because everyone I've spoken to, they always say, yes, the book is always better than the film. It is. It's much better. And the other thing is, you know, you can put your book down. Yeah. Go make a cup of tea. Mm. Answer the door. Yeah. Feed your kids because they make too much noise when they're hungry. Yeah. And pick it back up again. Mm. Can't do that with a film on the telly. No. And personally, sitting on the settee for two hours, just staring at a screen, doesn't have that much appeal for me. Mm. Like I say, it's it's all done for you. But then, yeah, the special effects. I mean, the one I think one thing with films, the special effects they've got, particularly these days, it's These just, days are a lot better, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially in uh, things like Harry Potter. Yeah. 
they stick very, very closely to the book. Yeah. In their special effects. Yeah. Whereas 20, 30 years ago, they used to change them. Mm. Stephen Mm. King's book, The Miseries, uh, a very good example of that. Yeah. I can remember sitting in the middle of my bed at four in the morning waiting to finish that book. Right. Because I don't particularly like horror stories, but it was one my son had and I nicked it to read. Yeah. Well, in that book, she stabs the state trooper. Yes. And then runs over him on a sit-and-ride lawnmower. Yeah. In the film, apparently, she shoots him. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, the special effects and blood and guts you got to produce running somebody over with a lawnmower was a bit too complex. <laughs> and you're not allowed to do it in reality. Mind you, you know, if that was made now, though... They probably would be able to do it. They'd do it with ease. Yeah. CGI and... But, yeah. Yeah. yeah but... Uh, I mean, I was, I was looking up in Harry Potter. Where are my notes on Harry Potter? There we go. So, in his book, um, Harry Potter and his mother both have green eyes. But in the film, both Daniel Radcliffe, obviously plays Harry Potter, and Geraldine Somerville, who played his mother, both had blue eyes. So they left them as they were. That's because it's very difficult to find somebody with green eyes. Yeah. My daughter-in-law actually has green eyes. Yeah. But they're very rare. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it didn't make perfect sense. But there's always differences between the plot of the book and the plot of the film. Yeah. and I'm guessing, again, a lot of that's probably down to whether they've got two, two and a half hour maybe in a film they've got to squeeze a massive novel into. Yeah, plus number of extras, number of uh, just state sets and, and things like that. Yeah, yeah. It all costs money. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, films take... Like, they. The budget's on films. Millions. Humongous, yeah. Millions. Um, as you know, I'm writing my first novel. Okay, yes, it's written. I'm now I'm now editing and formatting it. But how much did that cost? Nothing. Time. And well, that's to make difference. a film of it. Oh, yeah. Millions. Yeah. It cost millions. Which is why you're writing a book and not making a film. Mm. Yep. But who knows? So... I think we've about covered it for today, haven't we? I think so. Mm. So, thank you ever so much. It's been absolutely brilliant. That's all right. It's been quite fun. And we'll have you back on in, what, sort of months, six weeks? Do yeah. that first review? Yeah. That'd be brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I shall find a book to read. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye for now. Okay, folks. So, uh, there it is. Next week, I'll be talking to Christine Phillips about her book, A Beautiful Lie. If you are a writer with a story to tell, I'd love to hear from you. Email me at stripbackthepages at gmail.com or you can find me on Twitter at stripbackpages. Enjoy Halloween, be careful of the ghouls and signing off. (laughs) 